0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 we are going to take a look this morning at a scene which no one will be late to no one will forget no one will mistakenly omit it from their plans because when God sets appointments no one misses them and this morning we're looking In overview of the judgments that God has ordained for all both believers and unbelievers and then we will end up at the ultimate judgment the concluding chapter the last word of our God and father on unbelieving mankind but look at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 and truly seek to grasp the full impact of this verse It's a vital verse. It's a valuable verse. If you deal at all with people in this world, it's a verse that you should have noted and marked and circled because in our world in which we live, the elements of this verse are greatly militated against and more than just the judgment part. Let me show you. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment three elements for you to ponder from this verse as it introduces our topic of judgment this morning first of all as the new international puts it it is destined for men to die now this is no mystery we know that ever since Adam and Eve first understood that they had disobeyed and God Put them under the curse of sin because of their disobedience. It says in the scripture, and so they lived so many years and died, and lived so many years and died, and lived so many years and died. And Paul puts it this way, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. All of mankind. If you want to know whether or not someone has ever sinned or not, find out if they die. No matter who you talk to, no matter how great the lamas, no matter how great the great spiritual mystics of this world are, sooner or later, they all die. Cultic leaders, everyone, religious leaders, everyone in this world, except for two people, have died. Two were translated, remember? Other than that, and that was a miraculous intervention of God, all die. Now, Christ would have never died because he never sinned. That's why his life was taken from him as he gave it up for the sins of mankind, and God gave it back. But it's destined for man to die, and from Eden onward, there is no escaping that reality. But secondly, it says it's destined for man to die once, not over and over and over as they spiral upward as Whitman said, like the spider throwing its gossamer threads outward, oh my soul, trying to get to a new life, not like the New Age says that you can spiral through all these endless successions of reincarnations until you get to some upper level. That's all false. That's all a lie. God says it's appointed unto man to die once. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chance. There's no intermediate step. There's no extra special dispensation for some it's living dying and thirdly judgment and that's what it says in verse 27 the succession is that it is destined for all humans who have ever lived to die to die once and after that to face judgment god says that life is a one-way street There are no detours and circulations to come back around. It's a one-way street. And quite literally, life is a dead-end street. Except for the intervention of Christ at the rapture, all who ever live will someday die. Except for that select group, those believers that are alive, which could perhaps be even us, who he will take out of this world. But God has also said that he has a final appointment with all who ever lived. And those appointments are called his judgments. Well, let's meditate for just a moment on what this verse means. And I did a little calculating for you this week as I thought about it myself. Because it says that it is appointed unto all who have ever lived to die once and after that the judgment. And I thought, that's not too significant if you just think of this room. Or if you just think of the people that live around us. Or if you just think of Rhode Island or whatever... But how many people are we talking about if we're talking about all who have ever lived are going to die we don't know much about the uh, world before the flood how many people were here i'm sure that there were hundreds of millions of people on the world uh, at the time of the flood but we won't speculate on that but it took from noah and remember after the flood after the literal inundation and devastation of this world in the flood eight people were alive eight people are from whom all of us descend now all of us descend from adam and eve but adam and eve's ultimate descent that survived were noah and his three sons and their wives and noah's wife so there are eight people and from the end of the flood until the time of christ eight people multiplied into approximately 100 million people at the time of christ at the Roman Empire in its era there were about 50 million people in the Roman Empire and about 50 million people in the rest of the world approximately somewhere around 100 120 million people in the whole world so it took from the flood which perhaps is as recent as 4000 something BC all the way through to zero or 1 AD to get to 100 million people it took from the time of Jesus Christ until just about the year that George Washington died, uh, around 1800, to get to 1 billion people. So eight people turned into 100 million by the year 1 AD. Those 100 million got to 1 billion by 1800. Okay? Now, by the time of Herbert Hoover, some of you remember him, I'm sure, 1930, we're up to 2 billion people in this world. It took 130 years. Now, it took 2,000 years to get to a billion. Only 130 years to get to 2 billion. By the time we get to 1975, it's doubled again. From 30 to 75, now we have 4 billion people. From 1975 to 1990, the Lord does not intervene. And if we don't have any major disturbances in the way things are going, most of you sitting here uh... will still be alive if the lord doesn't return there'll be over ten billion people on this planet now that is ten times as many people as we're here in eighteen hundred that is a hundred times as many people as were here in the civilization when christ was here we're talking about a lot of people we're talking about an innumerable host of people in our conception and that is in spite of the fact That every single day, and yesterday on our way up to the uh, Pawtucket-Boston Red Sox game, Bonnie and I were talking about these figures, and I said, Did you know that 40,000 children starve to death every day in this world? Every single day, 40,000 children starve to death. A thousand people are killed in warfare every day around this world, and there are 230,000 that just die like normal people die on a regular basis when they reach the end of their life for whatever reason. Every day in this world, 270 to 300,000 people die. That's 100 million people a year that die, that die, that die. That's a billion every 10 years. It's just like clockwork. And with that number of humans that's alive right now, over 5 billion, with 100 million being added to the roles of the departed ones from this world, It is a staggering thing to think about that every single human being that has ever lived is going to someday stand in front of God to be judged. So man is destined to die. He lives and dies only once. And after that, he has an appointment. Let's look at just two things this morning. First of all, what are God's appointed judgments? And by the way, there are seven of them. And if you've never noted these, if you've never written them down, if you've never marked them in your Bible, it's time to really pay attention because it isn't enough for me to know about this, but I share it with you to use in your personal spiritual lives. God has described in His Word no less than seven appointed judgments. The seventh, which is the ultimate, final, climactic, indescribable last Word of God called the Great White Throne. Let's look at those... Seven major judgments. What are they? Well, first of all, there's the judgment of sin. Now, we all know this one very well. Perhaps this is the greatest judgment that all of us know about. And this took place when? About the year 30 AD. It's already taken place. Where? On a little hill called Calvary, outside of the Roman walled city of Jerusalem, where the garrisons were. Uh, Watching out for that city On the other side of the road Going to Damascus There's a little hill called Moriah The extension of where the Temple Mount is And on that hill Jesus Christ As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 On the cross Christ became sin for us Christ who knew no sin That we might be made the righteousness of God Probably the greatest judgment Of all was that one that's already taken place because in that moment john 129 says jesus christ took away the totality of the mass of the sin not the individual sins but the sin of the world john 129 and he made it possible and potential for all who have ever lived to have their sins forgiven but the sad note is as we shall continue this morning we'll find out that the majority of the world will never accept or receive or acknowledge that payment Christ made. And just think about the judgment of sin that Christ endured in his own body on the cross as he hung suspended between earth and heaven that day. It was so powerful that its power extended backward in time all the way to Adam and extended forward in time all the way to the last millennial human being that will live on this earth. And in that span of just six hours, Christ paid the debt to God. And he suffered the ignominious punishment for their sins. But it's only effective if they receive it. Or if they looked forward to that event. Or if they look back by faith to that event, as we do. The first judgment, the judgment of sin. What's the second judgment? It's the judgment of self. When does that take place? Today yesterday tomorrow what am i talking about in first corinthians 11 31 the apostle says if we would judge ourselves we won't be judged he's talking about the fact that each of us need to on a regular basis examine ourselves now there's a lot of talk about whether or not sins need to be confessed or whether or not the lord ever said you know first john 1 9 all that no matter what all the talk about that might be the apostle says that we the closer we get to a holy god must be scrutinizing and judging ourselves now what does that judgment entail it involves first of all from first john agreeing with god that we're sinners you don't forget about the fact we're all sinners it involves what christ said in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, of washing our feet on a regular basis because we walk through a sinful world and though we're totally cleansed when we come to Christ and salvation, we still pick up the mire and sin of this world. But the judgment of self is an ongoing process for Christians. Just as Christ paid the price ultimately for all of our sins, we agree with God and forsake and confess and repent of our sins on a regular basis. That's an ongoing judgment what's the third judgment the judgment of believers second corinthians chapter five and if you want to turn there with me briefly i want to remind you of what we learned several weeks ago this is one of our earlier in the series on what's next as we talked about the judgment seat of christ most vividly described in second corinthians chapter five when does this take place Just as the judgment of sin took place already in A.D. 30, just as the judgment on self on a daily basis takes place ever in the present and must always accompany our lives and pilgrimages, when does the judgment of believers take place? Scripturally, it seems to take place immediately after the rapture of the church. It takes place after God snatches before His wrath is poured out on this world all those who have known jesus christ where does it take place in heaven in his presence do you remember a few weeks ago we studied the seven elements the time of the judgment of believers is the day of christ it says that in first corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 in the day of christ the judge is christ himself paul said in 2nd timothy 4 8 when christ the righteous judge shall judge me The persons are all who know Jesus Christ, because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the passage we're looking at right now, for we must all, who's the we? The believers, that's us. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What's the severity of the judgment? In 1 Corinthians 3.13 it says it's going to be fire testing our works. Not us, not judgment, not pain inflicted on us, but the refining fire of God is going to burn through our entire life and everything that he told us to do and to live for and to do for eternity will remain and everything that we did in disobedience or in selfishness or in self-gratification is going to be consumed and in that instant the fire is going to reveal what type of life we had and what we live for it's a severe thing to think of suffering loss, though not eternal loss, no, though not loss of salvation, loss of being rewarded and said well done by our Lord. What's the standard that God is going to judge us on at that judgment seat? It says in First Corinthians four, verses one through five, our faithfulness. How faithful have we been with what we were given? And I like uh, what a good friend used to say. He said most Christians have a thimble. And they come to church and they take that thimble and and they said they get a little bit of something in it and on the way out they stumble on the church doorstep and they dump it out. Now that's not a very good illustration, but God says that no matter what our capacity of spiritual things is, whether we have a small capacity or He has greatly gifted you to do many things, He's going to judge us on how faithful we have been with what we've been given you remember the one servant had one talent, another had five, and another had ten. All were equally judged on what they did with what they were given. The standard is faithfulness to what we've been given in God's Word. What's the result? Reward or loss? Some will suffer loss. Others will be rewarded. What's the goal of that day? 1 Peter 5.4, that Christ will be glorified. That's our goal. And so we've seen that all who have lived and known Jesus Christ will either have lived for good or for nothingness. That's an upcoming judgment. What's the fourth judgment after the judgment of believers? The fourth is the judgment of Israel. The judgment of Israel is not a very often studied thing, but it's a very graphically described judgment in the Scriptures. When is it? It's at the end of the tribulation time. To give you a chronology, we're in the present, Christ paid the penalty for sin, the judgment of sin, the judgment of self, the judgment after the rapture occurs of believers, then begins a seven-year time of great thlipsis, is a Greek word, great outpouring of wrath of God on this earth. At the end of that time, Ezekiel 20, verses 33 to 44 says that God is going to specifically judge Israel. As a nation, He's going to gather them up He's going to judge them. And Christ will purge out in that moment the rebels and the unbelievers from his chosen people Israel who he redeems and saves at the climax of the tribulation hour. The fifth judgment described in Scripture is the judgment of the nations. And if you want to look at that, that's in Matthew 25. I'm sure that all of you have read often. And Matthew 25 is a simultaneous uh, moment a separate judgment just as god is judging israel in matthew 25 he says that the gentile nations will also be judged in fact it says in the old testament specifically where it will be it's going to be in a place called the valley of jehoshaphat as god assembles from every corner of the world all who have survived the tribulation one half of the world's population will be killed that means if the tribulation began today Two and a half billion people would die. But there'll still be two and a half billion left. And those will be assembled in Matthew 25. If you look at verses 31 through 46, describe it. And the Son of Man will come in His glory, and all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious thrones. And look what happens. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate from one, them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats it's uh, quite a scene to see in the middle eastern countries where they still have flocks the goats and sheep all eat together but the shepherd will stand at the fold and with his rod as they all start coming he'll just push away the goats and won't let them in the fold because they don't need to be in there they don't need to be so protected and in that moment the lord jesus christ will with his rod however he does it separate those who out of the tribulation have come to faith and those who haven't And verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment. That's those who believe not, but the righteous into eternal life. What a moment as he judges the nations. But something else takes place after that. That's not the end of all time. That's just the end of the tribulation. That just marks the beginning of a moment we know as the 1,000 literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now turn to our last passage of the morning, Revelation chapter 20. Because biblically, chronologically speaking, after the tribulation is over, after half the world perishes, after those who don't believe are thrown into a place of torment, those who believe and those who are truly Israel that have turned to Christ, those people begin to inhabit the earth. Did you know there is a day coming where the waters will all be pure again, where there will be no toxic waste dumps, where there will be no poisonous animals, no poisonous insects, there will be no... Curse that is dominant in this world. And in that moment, in that perfect earth, for 1,000 years, Christ is going to reign himself. You say, how do you know about that? Well, it says in Revelation 20, and we'll study this next week, in the first six verses, that God binds Satan. And we find there that there's this time where he is held back and restrained, literally, with his minions in the bottomless pit and verse 7 says and when the thousand years are completed and what's amazing is there's nothing figurative about this it's mentioned seven times in this passage one thousand years one thousand years there's nothing uh that is kind of metaphorical it's just a literal amount of years as much as the seven years is literal the thousand years is literal and when those thousand years are up we come now to the sixth judgment not the ultimate the sixth one is in verse seven And it says, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison and he will come out to deceive this world that's been perfect for a thousand years. And as the people have multiplied into incredible amounts, as the world produces food in incredible quantities, as it's just a paradise, he comes out, and we'll see next week, he deceives the majority of the people in the world and they follow him. But then the sixth judgment is the judgment of Satan and the demons. When does it take place? At the end of the millennium. Where? On earth. What's the description? Verse 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone. With the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Another group is also thrown in at the same time. Jude, verse 6, says that the angels which kept not their first estate but came down and cohabited with humanity back in Genesis chapter 6. They've been kept in everlasting change, in darkness, in a horrible place. They are also cast, the demon hosts are also cast into the lake of fire. And what's really sad about this is that this was all that was supposed to go there. The only group that was supposed to go to the lake of fire, of course, was Satan and his minions. But now we come... To the final judgment and that begins in verse 11 the great white throne judgment when is that well the judgment of sin was at calvary and the judgment of self is continuous and the judgment of believers is after the rapture and the judgment of nations and israel is after the tribulation the judgment of satan is after the millennium but when is the judgment of all unbelievers who have ever lived it's at the end of time after the millennium Daniel talks about a space of so many days and then he says that God calls a convocation never again to be repeated he calls from the dust of the earth he calls from the waters of the ocean he calls from every corner of this globe and all who have ever lived come in bodily form and silently stand as the congregation of the doomed. And that's what we're going to conclude with this morning. Looking at that most fearsome, most grievous final judgment. The congregation of the doomed are going to stand before God. And let's just look at verses 11 through 15 one at a time and, and glean every single element we can from this to understand it verse 11 describes the greatness of the judge mind you that everything has come to a screeching halt the warfare the deception the the roaming of Satan around deceiving the earth everything has stopped the fire of God consumed all those who were standing in opposition they died he resurrects them now And it says in verse 11, "...and I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them." The first element is the greatness of the Judge, from whom the whole world and the heavens flee away. He is great, and we know it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He he is great because of His majesty... The scriptures tell us that he is the creator of all. He is the one who began everything. In the beginning, God the Son, as it says in John 1, 1, 1 John 1, Colossians 1, 16, Jesus Christ is the creator. And he created the heavens and the earth, and now they flee before him because his judgment has been set up. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. He is the rock. He is the endless of days that Daniel saw. In Daniel chapter 7, with the fire from his eyes, with the glowing face from which all were fearful. He is the Son of God who said he would do this. The throne is great because of how majestic he is. It's white because of how holy he is. It is great because it fills all that can be comprehended. It's white because he is perfectly holy. He is the light. He is the everlasting burnings, as Isaiah called him. But I just want to read to you what Christ said, because some of you might not realize it's really Him that's going to be sitting on this. He said while He was on earth in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22, and I quote to you, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge of all. Why? Because He paid the price for all. And who but the author of free salvation can look at a rebel who wouldn't accept it and say, you're a curse, and condemned. Also in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 27, and he also gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of God became the Son of Man in order to make the way possible for the sons of men to become sons of God, but those that don't will again face the Son of God who is authorized to judge the world. In John chapter 10 verse 42 I also read for you these words as Christ was again challenged and he said in in John 10 excuse me the whole chapter that only those especially who are his sheep will hear his voice and in John 10 he says those that hear his voice follow him but those that do not verse 5 follow him are because they look on him as a stranger our Lord didn't speak only about this also the apostle Paul says in Acts 17 verse 31 these words he said there's a day coming when God who has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he hath appointed who is no other than our Lord Jesus Christ the apostle Peter put it this way as in one of his early sermons in the book of Acts he said these words and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one whom God has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ is appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one who is going to call this convocation. Paul said this in Second Timothy chapter 4. As he concluded his life, he said, In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Every time we find judgment going on in the scriptures, we find Jesus Christ as the righteous judge. And finally, the Apostle Peter also echoes all of this in his epistle. As he said in 1 Peter 4 5, and they shall give an account to him that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ready to judge the quick, that's the living and the dead no wonder all flee from him for he is great he is creator and he is the one who alone holds their destiny in his hand but look again at Revelation 20 and verse 12 because the scene continues not merely focusing on the greatness of the judge and on this incredible throne upon which he sits but look at verse 12 and it says I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The second feature is the inescapableness of this judgment. It says all are there, there's no one missing. The great don't have other appointments, they don't send some representative, they show up themselves. The small, they cannot say that I can't make it, I can't afford it, I don't have time, I'm working for God has called the last and the greatest and the final roll call, and no one misses their day in court. There are several notable people which will be there. From history we know of Ivan the Butcher, the famous and infamous man who gassed to death children and women during World War II's detention camps and concentration camps. He was known for his glee for murdering the innocent and the unprotected he can hide no more in disguise to escape the penalty in that moment he will stand there exposed for all to see and to face his judgment from past history we think of Genghis Khan who was so well known for flaying his enemies alive he liked to skin them, and it made him one of the most fearful of the ancient Mongol warriors he doesn't have any armies to protect his terrors he stands all alone in that day before the judgment of God there were an earlier group of people the Bible refers to you remember when Paul said neither barbarian Scythian bond or free why did he mention those people in the ancient world the most feared people of the Roman Empire's time were called the Scythians they were never conquered they just dissipated they lived on their horses they had curved swords with which they would conquer their, their enemies by cutting their heads off. And the initiation rite to show they conquered is, as a coconut was cracked open, they'd take that head open and they would drink the victim's blood from their skull. The Scythians and their horsemen who killed their foes and so who gruesomely demonstrated their power will stand silent in that day before their creator, before their judge and from Voltaire to Hitler from Pharaoh in his unbelief to the priests of Molech who burn children they are all present they are unable to escape this inescapable hour verse 13 quickly says this and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death And Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. We see here the exactness of the standard. There's going to be no wavering. There's going to be no uh, partiality. There's a very exact standard by which all will be judged. Our Lord said in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, in verse 48, specifically what the standard of the judgment is, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. The word of Jesus Christ is the ultimate exacting standard by which all will be judged. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore the deeds of the law say that no flesh shall be justified in his sight. And many will say, Matthew 7, records for us in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in thy name and cast out demons in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then Christ said, I will profess unto them, yes, all that's true. But, verse 23, I never knew you, Matthew records, depart from me ye, ye that work, Iniquity. Look at what verse 13 says. They will be judged, the very last words, according to their deeds. One author put it this way. The king of kings with holy unsparingness drags into complete view every second of their lives. Everything before his holy eye. For God has kept a running record to show that none could make it by works. No one did enough good. No one did enough good deeds to pile up to reach heaven. For all have fallen short of the glorious standard, which is perfection, as God is perfect. The Word of God says that in that day, Matthew 12 records, their words will condemn them. Hebrews 4.13 says the very secrets of their soul will be exposed, and that will condemn them. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, I love this passage portrait of christ i'll read to you as it tells us in the 14th verse in his head and his hair were white like wool and like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire in that moment the judge sitting on the throne will look out and individually with piercing eyes will look through that person and will expose what they really were in his sight and in light of his holiness and finally, Daniel 7, 9-10, through 10, if you want to read that sometime, tells that in that moment He will be sitting on the throne and the fire will be issuing out from it. The myriads of the heavenly host will be all around Him. And in the utter perfection of that moment, each person that ever lived will stand. And the Scriptures say that the 14th verse takes place. And let me share it with you. And death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire this is the second death, the lake of fire. Because in that moment, I believe that it will fully dawn on every heart the fourth aspect of this judgment, which is the finalness, the finality of the sentence. As Christ speaks, in that moment, the self-righteous will see themselves as filthy rags, and their account will be finalized. There will be no cleansing The vain babblers will be dumb before him, as Matthew 22 says. They will no longer be able to explain themselves away. They will be silenced. The greats of earth will be pitiful in their wretchedness that day, as Psalm 2 records. And each one will get their individual rewarded punishment. You say, will there be levels of punishment? Yes. The Bible says that it says in matthew 24 51 each one will get an individual portion in matthew 10 15 christ himself said in that ultimate judgment it will be better for sodom and gomorrah than for some of you that means there are levels of punishment in matthew 11 21 and 22 he said someday it will be easier for tyre and sidon than for the town of bethsaida which rejected christ's word and finally in matthew 12 42 christ said in that day the queen of sheba will rise up with the people from Nineveh and they will directly condemn those people who lived in the generation of Christ and say, why didn't you listen to Him? And the Lord says, the ultimate, Matthew 25, 46, then He will say unto them, depart ye cursed. But finally, verse 15, and let's hasten on as we conclude this morning. In the midst of all this awfulness, the inescapableness of the judgment, the exactness of the standard, the final nature of their sentence comes the blessedness of verse 15. The blessedness of the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written, and here's the blessedness in the book of life, then the horror was cast they were cast into the lake of fire in that moment individually they'll walk up Christ will expose them for their deeds of their lifetime he will show that they fell short of his standard he will turn to the angel and say did they ever ask for the only remedy for life eternal to partake of my grace not by their works but by my gracious offering the angel will look through the book of life and say no They never did call upon the name of the Lord. They never did repent of their sins. They never did come God's way. They went their own way. And it says they're cast into the lake of fire. What's the blessedness, though? They had the opportunity to be in the book of life. What's the book of life? The Scriptures tell us in Revelation 13, it's the book of those before known people, those who before the foundation of the world Christ paid the price for. It's the book of those blood-bought men and women and children because Revelation 21:27 says it's the book of life of the Lamb. Those that have looked on Christ for their sacrifice of their sin. What's the book of life? It's the book of life of the newborn people because it's a book of life, not death. They were born from above unto life, not unto eternal death. It's also the happy people... Because Luke ten twenty says, Rejoice, for your names are written in heaven. Those in the book of life are happy. It's the book of those who are joyful witnesses, because Revelation thirteen eight says that they defy even the Antichrist and they speak for him. Paul said in Philippians four three, Rejoice for your names are in the book of life, and speak of those wonders. It's the book of those who are victorious for their overcomers. Revelation 3, 5 says, And finally, the book of life is for glorified people, for they will enter the heavenly city. In other words, who's in the book of life? Christians. Born again people. Those that have been saved and converted have been washed by the blood of Christ. For they are known before, bought by the blood, born from above with life, happy and joyful, victorious, and glorified. But the sadness is that our Lord Jesus Christ said that the majority of the world will stand that day condemned. For broad is the road, wide is the gate, and few that find the way to life because the majority are going through the wide gate. And where does that wide gate of life end? Right here in verse 20 or verse 15. Because whoever did not bow their knee to Jesus Christ in that day of their life will in the day of their doom, at the final judgment, be thrown bodily for eternal destruction, never-ending pain, in the lake of fire. The Bible has much to say about hell. In about two weeks, we're going to actually look at that. I don't think most of you have probably heard an entire message on eternal destruction. Christ talked twice as much about hell as he did about heaven. But I wonder in that day, are we aware of the awesomeness of our task to point as many people in life as we can to the Lamb of God which will avert them from going to the lake of fire? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning, for an extended time for us to examine judgment. Thank you for the judgment of sin accomplished. I pray that even this moment we would be examining our own hearts and judging self that your spirit may have free reign. O Lord, we wish to stand before you in that day in holiness and precious Savior, may we turn many to righteousness by your grace that they will not go to that final judgment and be ever in torment, or rather that their names will be written in the book of life. We pray to that end this day. For Jesus' sake, amen.